Hi, and welcome to the Machine Ethics Podcast. This month, we're joined by Reed Blackman. This episode was recorded on the 20th of June, 2022. And we chat about what is learning, what it means to be worthy of trust, terrible AI principles, his new book, Machine Ethics as a Fool's Errand, Metrics of Bias, Ethics Committees, Policy, and much, much more. If you'd like to find more episodes from us, you can go to machine-ethics.net or you can contact us at hello at machine-ethics.net. You can find us on Twitter at machine underscore ethics, Instagram at machine ethics podcast. And if you can, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash machine ethics. We had a hiatus between the last episodes, so I apologize. In that time, I got married and I also started a new company doing desk space in Bristol. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy. Hi, Reid. Welcome to the podcast. If you could please introduce yourself, um, who you are and what do you do? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. My name is Reid Blackman. I'm the CEO and founder of Virtue, an AI ethical risk consultancy. I'm the author of a book by, uh, published by Harvard Business Review coming out in just a few weeks now, July 12th, called Ethical Machines, Your Concise Guide to Totally Unbiased, Transparent, and Respectful AI. I am the chief ethics officer of the Government Blockchain Association, which is a nonprofit um, organization for which I volunteer. I've been a senior advisor to the, to the Deloitte AI Institute. I was a founding member of EY's AI Advisory Board. I advise a range of Fortune 500, Global 1000 businesses, and a handful of startups as well. That's enough. You know, who cares? <laughs> um, I did actually, because I, I read your book. I have your, um, I have a copy Thanks. of Ethical Machines, um, as you pointed out, your concise guide to totally unbiased, transparent, and respectful AI. In my personal view, that is like a, a bold statement <laughs> from, from the get-go about the takeaway of the book uh, i don't find it unfounded but it is like it's absurd it's a, it's 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 tongue-in-cheek it's 100 tongue-in-cheek right 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 um I, i'll i'll say that you know the title's not totally up to me um harvard business review had things to say about what the title should and should not be and mm-hmm, think mm-hmm. about seo purposes and things like that right i wanted it to, i wanted it to be more over the top um so that it you know, it was very plain. It was tongue in cheek. I wanted it to be something like your concise guide to what it was, something like utterly unbiased, totally transparent and remarkably mm. respectful AI, you know, just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but it was a bit too, too over the top for them. So they, they, they toned it down and yeah, but no, of course you can't have totally unbiased AI. You can't, it can't be 100% respectful and 100%, you can't be 100% transparent. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a bit tongue in cheek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess it depends on what what you mean when you say those things to to make it like you know uh, qu- qualify essentially. Like that statement only qualifies if you all speak in the same language, if you all have the same appreciation for these things, and if those things actually get executed in a way that makes sense for all that language. And maybe you know it's probably not a AI which is being used in a very uh, pernicious area anyway. You know, and then. <laughs> Then maybe that will apply, but I feel like I'm jumping in the gun. So, uh, first <laughs> of all, <laughs> Reed, yeah. uh, the question we always ask at the beginning of the podcast is, what is AI? Software that learns by example. Sweet. Done. 
Uh, you know, obviously AI is broad term, machine learning is a subset of AI, but it's the vast, vast, vast majority of AI that any business is designing, developing, deploying right now. So it's machine learning. What's machine learning? Machine learning is just a fancy phrase for software that learns by example. It could learn by examples of, and the fancy word for example is data. So you want to be able to recognize your dog Pepe, give it a bunch of examples of your dog Pepe, meaning pictures of your dog, which is to say data, and it'll learn, you know, hopefully what your dog looks like. So when you upload a new picture, it'll be, it'll say, yeah, that's Pepe. Um, what do the interview worthy resumes look like? We'll give it a bunch of examples of interview worthy resumes and it'll quote unquote learn what they look like so that when you upload a new resume, it'll tell you whether it's um, uh, interview worthy or not. So it's, it learns by example. Of course, as you know, it, it's not a perfect learner by example, but that's what that's all it is. I think at the core is software that learns by example. Yeah, and I'm guessing people who have listened to the, this podcast and other podcasts like it um, have a pretty uh, firm idea. You know, you're not good to ask a algorithm just to pick um, the best resumes. You know, out thin air basically without having some yeah. good idea of what that actually means, what good is, and that usually pertains to having a load of data and they are uh, categorized in some way so you can learn from them in right. some direction, right? Yeah. So if there are interview worthy, um, interview worthy resumes and what you might, what you might do as Amazon, you know, sort of famously or infamously did is they took, you know, all the resumes that were judged interview worthy by people in the past X amount of years. I don't know exactly what it was, call it 10 years. And they said, look, those resumes that look like these are the interview worthy ones. And um, yeah, and it, 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 it kind of gets us quite nicely into the sticky position of like the ethics of AI, right? So like, yeah. what happens when that goes wrong? And the resumes turn into, oh, well, we've learned that actually you, you only employ men or you only employ, you know, certain demographics. And maybe that becomes something that we don't want in our system. You know, we don't actually want at like scale, <laughs> at speed, right. um, all these things, maybe this particular output, because you've taught it to do something based on um, previous, maybe dogmatic, problematic data, or data you just didn't know had this tendency in it. Um, and that kind of brings us into the ethics of AI and you're producing these things and you've got to be aware about what outcomes could happen. Yeah. I mean, you know, it learns by example, but it, it may, it may look quote unquote, learn things. And I say quote unquote, because it doesn't obviously, it doesn't learn anything. It's the, learning is something like a, a psychological state, a mental state that, you know, people have, um, dogs have them, <laughs> dogs can learn things, but, um, algorithms cannot learn. So anyway, so I say quote unquote, learn and Hereafter, I'll stop saying, quote unquote, I'll just say learn. Um, but it, you know, it can learn things that you do not intend for it to learn. Like we only hire men around here, or we don't give credit to black people, or we only show ads to buy houses to white people and houses to rent to black people. And it, you know, black people are more likely to commit a crime within the next two years than white people all else equal. You know, so you didn't intend for it to learn those things, so to speak. Uh, and now it's sort of double, you know, <laughs> Quotes one, because it's not learning, and two, because um, learning also implies that the thing that's learned is true. Um, I think, I think, is that right? I don't know. Is that right? Mm, I mean, you could learn, I guess you could learn all sorts of things. It doesn't make it true. Um, yeah, I guess. Can you learn that two and two is five? Okay, this is two. <laughs> I don't think I can. You could, um, you could be told okay. that, and that's something that you commit to memory, therefore, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to go with it. Uh, what philosophers would call a success term, but <laughs> I could be completely 
I don't know, that's just off the cuff. And mm. very few people in the world actually care about this point. So let's so we can move on. Um, so one of the things, um, you know, being from your background, your, pe your pedigree as a philosopher, teaching lots and lots of students and having that um, kind of viewpoint on all this, I was very interested to see kind of what you had to say about the, the word ethics. I'm, I'm putting air quotes here, ethics, capital E ethics or yeah. Um, that sort of thing, and yeah. it, in your in your book, I was I I felt like this is my like um, mouth blogging review right here. I felt like the ethics actually came through better in the book than it throughout the book than the ethics in the ethics chapter actually explained mm -hmm. it. Yeah, um, but I think it might be because of I wanted more. I wanted it to be uh, more substantial, and I felt it was quite hand wavy. You know, it was like. Um, this is the chapter about whether ethics is objective. Yeah, I mean, I think mm -hmm. it was uh, early on, so second cha second chapter, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, let me let's I'll, I'll sort of explain to the audience what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, early on in the book, I contend with this claim that ethics is subjective. It's just opinion. It's squishy, and and so you know, what are we really talking about here? Isn't this just how people feel about things? And if so. This is not really within the proper domain of, say, a data scientist or an engineer or an executive or just business generally shouldn't be legislating values or something like that. So one thing that I want to do is say, all right, look, a lot of you are going to get confused about this talk about ethics because you think it's subjective. And when you really get to have a conversation on an ethically charged issue, if you don't sort of get some myths out of the way or some mis misconceptions out of the way, someone's going to say, eh, it's all just subjective. And then everyone's just going to stop and stop talking. So as a, you know, I was a professor for 10 years plus, you know, five years at uh, teaching students as a graduate student. So I've had about 15 years of, of being a professor teaching ethics in particular. And I, and I always found that if I didn't, if I didn't nip this issue in the bud really early in the semester, I mean, like, you know, day two, day three, after welcome, welcome everybody. And now let's get rid of your misconceptions. And then we launched into an ethics conversation. At some point, someone would raise the issue of, oh, ethics is just subjective anyway. Isn't this all just opinion? And, and because no one in the class knew how to respond to that, they were just, you know, their response was, yeah, <laughs> it was a total discussion stopper. And not just discussion stopper, but something like investigator, investigation stopper, because in my view, ethics, ethical inquiry is genuine inquiry. It's an investigation into what's right and wrong and good and bad and so forth. So the that opening chapter, or that not opening chapter, is it the opening chapter? Early chapter anyway, is meant to do the same thing that I did in the classroom for 15 years, which is to say there's some myths or misconceptions about ethics being subjective. Here are the reasons people usually think it. We're going to get those off the table. My experience is that whenever I did that in a class, and I started doing it only in introductory level courses when I was a professor, and then I found that, nope, actually the seniors, you know, the senior seminars, they need a reminder too. Discussions always went more smoothly, and virtually no one ever said, yeah, but this is just subjective anyway, because I already beat them up on that. They, they already saw that their grounds for thinking that were phenomenally shaky. So it's not meant to sort of say, here's what ethics is all about. It's just to get rid of misconceptions so that people's minds are more open to getting the messages that are contained in all those all the rest of the chapters. Yeah, and that, that goes uh, hand in hand with helping buy in and 
um, all those sorts of things in the business world because we can, you know, we can move past that and we can go, okay, you know, we're going to use this tool, you know, this um, inquiry, like you're saying, this mode of operation to help us with mitigation tasks, with actually discovering what is, you know, good and bad about the products we could make um, and hopefully have a better idea about how we can make it better, how we can make it in a different direction, all the sort of stuff. So we're using it as yeah. this kind of like um, way that we can make a product uh, more robust and, and um, you know, worth yeah. trusting. And, and I like this idea um, of being trustworthy, which you actually bring up in the book as well. So um, be wor- uh, worth someone's trust. Um, yeah, sometimes people will say things like, you know, we're really aiming for customer trust. And I sort of say, well, look, a con, a con man aims at getting people's trust so that he can betray it and, you know, get the thing that he wants. So it can't be the case that what your goal is to merely cause people to trust you. Hmm. It must be the case that you want people to trust you for the reason that you're trustworthy, that you are, that you are, that, that your behaviors, your actions, your operations merit, warrant trust. Yeah. So let's think about what it is to be trustworthy. That said, I should say, this is just sort of one caveat and I don't mention in this book. I actually think it's sort of, um, in a way, it's sort of a fool's errand to go for trustworthy. <laughs> when I think about the companies that some might characterize as my as me trusting, it's not that I trust them; it's that I lack distrust. And so, really, what I think companies should be aiming for is let's not do anything that would cause companies to not trust us. So, think about Apple mm-hmm. and privacy. Make sure that people's privacy is respected. Do I trust Apple with my data? That's a bit strong. You know, I wouldn't go to them and say, hey, listen, can you hold this for me? I'm sure you'll be great with it, right? It's more like I don't actively distrust them. And that's sort of good enough. Um, when when consumers are interacting with, with companies, it's not that they want to act with a you know, trustworthy friend. They want to meet the minimum. They want to meet a minimum of I don't actively distrust you. And some companies have, have uh, fallen, fallen short of that goal. Oh, but, I, want, I like that idea. I wonder if there's actually a company that is one of your like trustworthy friends that actually fits that kind of uh, model. No way. I mean, I don't want even, even let's take a company that, that looks to be, I haven't done any sort of deep dive here, but looks to be pretty good. Like take, take Patagonia. They seem sort of on the ethical up and up. Do I trust them with my debt? I don't know. I don't know what their data governance system looks like. So they might have, have all the good intentions in the world, but just because, you know, by mere accident, um, mm. And maybe, maybe, you know, recklessness or negligence. This is not a judgment about Patagonia. I have no idea. I'm just saying, I don't know mm-hmm. how they deal with people's data, but I think they're generally good. So I don't actively distrust them, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, there's no, I have no grounds on which to say, oh, they're, they really treat people's data respectfully. I have no idea. Yeah. So it's coming from a direction of um, kind of their general behavior rather than any particular knowledge about their, them outwardsly saying anything uh, that would, lead you yeah. to believe something about them yeah it's so it's usually it's usually i think most people regard companies not when they sit and reflect but in their day-to-day operations as basically neutral like i don't think they're gonna i don't think they're really bad i don't think they're really you know really good and i can trust them i think most of they just like yeah that's a that's an organization with which i have various transactions mm. they only really get it on their mind when you know cambridge analytica happens or when there's a spread of misinformation and deep fakes and a genocide in Myanmar, or th- that's when people are like, ooh, I don't know if I want to do business with this company. I don't know if I trust them. 
but that's active distrust. It's not so that, but the, you know, the presence of active distrust, barring doing business in one case, doesn't entail that you need the presence of trust in order for business to be done. There's something between trust and, and distrust, which is just sort of meh, basic neutrality. <laughs> but I guess, on, on, I guess they're fine. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm not actually too concerned with this uh, description, but I guess you do in a way trust companies enough to, uh, you know, to, to commit to use their services to, in the knowledge that they probably use data or whatever at some point. So you must trust them at least a tiny bit, you know, because otherwise yeah. you probably wouldn't. I would, say, well, I, I would say something like in the absence of active distrust, I'll take yeah. the bet. Okay. The Murphy trust. <laughs> um, so one of the questions I had was, um, who is this book for? Because I found it fascinating because I have a disposition Sorry. for... Um, this area, I'm interested in it. I've done some work in it. Uh, I've written some stuff. And, you know, reading your book is uh, was interesting because it reaffirms some things I did know. It alters things that maybe I hadn't really thought about too much. And it really concretizes or makes concrete some ideas which I didn't know how to articulate. And uh, one of those which I found fascinating, which was the principles um, so there's a chapter all about um, AI ethics principles and how companies um, uh, from about 2018 just just started making these principles and just put them on their websites and it was a big PR thing and everyone had their, their ethics principles or AI ethics principles or data ethics principles or whatever they were calling it or framework or whatever. And they boil down to these quite hollow aspirational words which you then in the book kind of take apart and be more specific about actually you know what is actionable in here yeah so okay so one question was who's the book for the second question is um what do you um what's the deal with your critique of these principles yeah so as for who the book is for it's not for the hardcore you know data scientist who wants to get into the math it's for primarily anyway more senior leaders who need to get a grip on this stuff so that they can actually put ethical risk mitigation strategies into place. So your chief analytics officer, chief data officer, chief analytics and data officer, your um, you know SVP of engineering, maybe your head of AI innovation, those those kinds of people. Sometimes the lead data scientist. It depends upon who owns the problem within the organization. But it's 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 for those more. Primarily, again, primarily for those more senior level people to get a grip on what's AI, what's ethics, what is AI ethics, what are the risks, how do we identify them, how do we mitigate them? So that's that's the primary audience. The secondary audience is, you know, the data scientist as well, the engineers, the product owners, so that they can get a grip on, you know, what there's all these buzzwords. There's you know, there's bias and black box models, and those are really scary. And there's privacy violations and I think that they've got a basic knowledge of these things, but it's sort of piecemeal. And one of the things that I tried to do in the book is really, I want to show people what I call the AI ethical risk landscape. I really want them to see clearly the whole, not just the parts, but the whole, and then to understand what the parts of the whole are, and then how those parts relate to each other and relate to the whole. So that's so I, you know, instead of people just saying bias is bad, and you know, I want them to be able to to understand that bias is one issue. There's many other kinds of issues, and this is how the bias issue actually comes up. It's yes, 
People like to say bias training data sets. Fine. That's under describes the problem. So anyway, that's that's sort of who it's for. And then I actually think that there's a really good application for this in the classroom. So one audience that I sort of had in mind was the the engineer or computer scientist who's teaching a AI ethics class um, as, is, as is becoming increasingly required for undergraduates majoring in things like computer science and, and data science. And I think that this is this book will nicely sort of lay out again the landscape for them and then they can sort of dive deeper as they wish there's a chapter on bias the chapter on bias is supposed to give you a sort of well among other things a conception of what the hell it is we're talking about um some sources of bias some things to do about it but it doesn't get down to that if you like the the quantitative level of of analysis and then that's where you know a computer science professor can supplement the chapter with that more technical stuff now for the principles, yeah, I just find most of these principles are totally bullshit. Um, so, you know, how many companies say we're for fairness? We're, you know, when we develop our AI, we we want to create fair AI. And I just sort of think, well, I mean, the KKK would say the same thing. Therefore, you know, broadly speaking, they're for fairness. You write down, we are for fairness. We're for fair AI. And they'll sign that piece of paper. They'll have a very different conception about what implementation looks like, um, but they can they can sign up for it. You know, we're for transparency. Uh, okay, to, who are you going to? What are you going to be transparent about? To whom? Under what conditions? You know, that's just all sort of left. Are you going to give away your IP? Obviously not. So what are you going to tell people? People's salaries? Probably not. So, uh, you know, are you going to reveal your internal policies with regards to the AI product lifecycle? Probably so. Tell you can tell tell me you're for transparency, but I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. So, I think that these are mostly BS, and it it invites the charge of ethics washing. But even more than that, it actually hinders people from doing something real, because what they do is they come up with these ethics principles, and then and I had this happen to me several times. They reach out to me and they say, "Reed, we've got advanced agreement." <laughs> sorry, they have, we we have sorry robust agreement on an advanced advanced set of ethical principles and now you know we, we could use your help implementing them we want to operationalize them and they have no idea where to start and the reason they have no idea where to start is because their principles are so watery that they don't point in any particular direction they they, they point both towards and away from the kkk implementation it's it's nothingness so the general thing that i want to urge people to do when they articulate their principles or their values these are different things, but we'll use them interchangeably. Is I, I, I need all of my clients to tie uh, an avowal of a commitment to a particular value to a set of guardrails. So my favorite sort of not quite toy example, but we value privacy, so we will never sell your data to a third party. I like guardrails need to be, we never do this and we always do that, something along those lines. And so if you can tell me we really care about privacy, or let's say, let's go with bias now. We really value not having fair AI. And so we will ensure that every single one of our AI models will go through a bias mitigation due diligence process. Okay, I'm getting something now. I don't, there's a lot left out, of course, but at least I'm getting some kind of commitment to action that says to me, oh, I see. When they say they value bias mitigation or they value fairness, that means that they're committed at least to engaging in a certain kind of process throughout, you know, in the AI life cycle. We need more than that, but at least that's a start. So I think those principles don't mean anything unless they commit the organization to always or never doing something.
Yeah, and what is nice in your book is that you kind of pull that apart and you then stick it back together again, um, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So you kind of go, okay, well, if you're going to make these statements, if they're going to be you know somewhat aligned with your company, right, and they're going to be somewhat value based, um, then you can you know value a specific thing and you can have that specific thing. Um, I think the example in the financial one was like uh, respecting people's um respecting people yeah it was something like they didn't want they didn't want um they valued something like clear and honest and comprehensive communication communication yeah that's it because they didn't want people to feel taken so one of the things that i recommend is when you're creating these ethics statements i want you to first think about not your ethical goals lofty ideals i want you to think about your ethical nightmares and then a financial services company uh, that does advisory services might think, you know, one one ethical nightmare for us is for our for our clients to feel like they're being taken advantage of because they don't know anything about the very complex world of finance and we know everything and that would be really bad. And so we really value. So that's the nightmare. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid people, A, being taken advantage of and, and as a result, being uh, feeling like they've been taken advantage of? You really value clear, honest, comprehensive communication. Yeah. So that's a value. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and, and then the, the practice. Because we value clear, honest, and comprehensive communication, we will always, you know, communicate things at a third grade level. Or yeah. We will always blah, 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. And then um, operationally, you can do something with that, right? You can kind of go, okay, well, we have this thing. And are we doing that thing? Are we, you know, how are we doing that thing? And you can start like bleeding that down in, internally and, and working out what that actually means for you. And Exactly, exactly. As opposed to, are we being fair? Are we being respectful? That's blah. That's too. That's too. That's too nothing. Um, and then the other thing that you just that you mentioned is, I think it needs to be tied to the company purpose. In in so far as people actually talk about the purpose and take it seriously within an organization. So, mm-hmm. if it's just a sort of like here's this other thing that we do, this ethicsy stuff, nah. But if you know we're customer obsessed, and you know, <laughs> which is just sort of a generic corporate value that everybody has, which means it's basically useless. But um, to the extent that you can say we're customer obsessed and part of being customer obsessed means obsessed with our customers' welfare or happiness mm-hmm. or well-being. And so we will blah, 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 blah. It's yeah. our ethical risk mitigation strategy here. I mean, there's lots of these, right? Um, back to the principle idea. The one which is probably the most concise is the OECD AI ethics principles. And I was bringing up the fact that the first two principles actually are things that you should be doing anyway. Like there's so many principles which are like, why are you not doing this in your business already? Uh, it's like respect humans and respect the planet. It's like, what are you doing then? <laughs> ah, why are we even having to type this out, guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's it's just sort of it's fluffy, just yeah. fluff. People don't know what to say. They, you know, they don't know what to do with ethics. They're 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 very confused. Not not non culpably. You know, it's not, mm. not what they focused on. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're bad people. They could be very ethical people, but that doesn't mean that they know how to talk about ethics and then how to talk about it in a way that leads to a certain kind of or a certain set of actions or a risk program or some such. Mm. So they don't they they don't know how to talk about it. Again, not blaming, non-culpable. This is non-culpable ignorance in my view. They don't know how to talk about it. And then they're also people are also scared, frankly. They don't when it comes to ethics, people are are scared of saying the wrong thing. They're afraid of offending. And so you get that kind of universal agreement 
or at least intersubjective agreement within a committee that's forming principles to say, well, we're all for respect, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yes, let's put that in there. So it gets in there. But so I understand why it gets in there. It's just not helpful. Yeah. So one of the things I took away from your book is that if you're reading it and you haven't got to the end, it might seem insurmountable, some of this stuff. Hmm. Um, I mean, there's a lot. And I think what your book is is saying is not the tip of the iceberg, but like structurally how this could play out mm-hmm. and how you could today actually do stuff and today uh, think about your frameworks and your processes and get people involved. And here's a way of doing thinking about that. And let's, let's get on and do that guys. Um, I feel like if you're looking at all that stuff in one go, or even just a small company that could feel overwhelming do you have that sense um of that of that kind of issue when you're working into this or is it more of a we can do this when we're big players and we have the money to kind of splash on yeah i don't so i don't know that being overwhelmed is the is the main obstacle that i confront with clients i mean maybe to some extent i think it's mostly confusion i mean i guess feelings of confusion can lead to feeling overwhelmed or Maybe vice versa, but it's mostly just sort of, yeah, we're just not sure what we're not sure what to do with this. We're not sure where to start. Where do where do where do we begin? What do, should we have principle? Do we do the principles thing? How, how do we you know? Do we need do we start with a policy? Should we what tools what tools are we supposed to use? And so the book is meant to orient them, right? So let's just you know to take some I don't know I'm not sure how apt this metaphor is, but let's say that. Building an AI ethical risk program, you know, really putting it into practice is, you know, five levels of work, okay? And the book is meant to show you the first something like two levels. It's to get people to get a grip on what the issues are, how they arise, how they relate to each other, what the what the sort of complexities are, and the and then towards the end of the book, at a at a sort of high level at least, what strategically do we need to have in place? Or at least, at least what do we need to think informing our strategy? What are the kinds of things that we need to think about? Um, and then when it comes, then, you know, and then it comes to actually putting pen to paper and, okay, let's write that policy. Let's write those principles. Let's create that training, um, that onboarding. Let's create the risk matrices. Let's create the, you know, the internal governance structure. Let's create an ethics board. Let's, you know, that's a lot. There's there's a lot of work to be done, but and the book is not meant to say I'm going to take you from zero to you're completely done. You have a complete, whole, beautiful AI ethics program. It's to put people on a firm ground to understand what it is they what it is they need to accomplish and why they need to accomplish it, and to take a first few steps towards understanding. Yeah, no, take a lot of steps towards understanding what the steps are to putting things in practice. You know what what they should talk about at that first meeting. And I think it does that, you know, I think, um, Thanks. I think, um, you have a lot of these books that are coming through, um, which I read as many as I can with the yeah. time I have allotted to me. God, I've got this like bookshelf, which is getting ridiculous. And a, a lot of the time there's, uh, books which are just kind of like, here are, um, examples and issues and let's just yeah. talk about them. Right. And this is not that this is a book, which is, has focus and it has, um, an eye to educate you in these areas, but around this, this specific thing that you're going to hopefully enact, you know, you're working in this area, you're working with AI in some form, uh, or you want to, 
and you're going to have to think about these things and here's a nice structure how to think about these things uh, and now we can go away and think about it you know you know in start a, doing yeah exactly so yeah i mean i would say it's it's not a there's there's certainly philosophical content but it's not a philosophy book it's not let's just think about you know let's think deeply about you know bias or whatever so it's not just sort of you know quote unquote important intellectual ethical inquiry it's not that there's a bit of that sprinkled in but that's not primary that's neither primarily nor secondarily what it's about it's not a a book for tack of tactics like mm, you know here here are 10 best practices it's not that it's a it's a strategy book i think mm. if i know what if i think if i know what that word means in business um it is a you know it's it's a book that's meant to put you in a place where you can start developing an AI ethical risk strategy. And given that that's the case, do you ever think about those other things that that obviously could be in your wheelhouse? Um, you know, when you're thinking about implications of AI having some sort of consciousness or uh, singularity or transhumanism or um, you know, programming machine to take ethical decisions. Do you think about those things as well? It's like an aside, because obviously this book is very focused on the here and now and the concrete of like our current situation. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't think very much about artificial general intelligence or AGI. I think the probability of that is phenomenally slim in anything like the near or even midterm future, probably even the future, you know, this is the future. So is it fun to think about? Sure. Am I worried about it? Do I spend a lot of time thinking about it? No. Do I think about having machines make certain kinds of ethical decisions? I don't think a lot about a lot about it because it's obvious that that's phenomenally ethically risky because there's, you know, who's programming this thing? I mean, and I don't think anyone's, I don't know who's doing it or who's trying to do it, but it just seems like a total fool's errand. So I don't have to think about it much to know, okay, that's going to be a disaster. Um, and if someone came to me and said, Hey, can you help us with the, you know, make this thing, make ethical decisions? I'm just going to say something like, look, that's, that's a fool's errand. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, I'll think about deeper, or if you like get into the weeds of real ethical inquiry, a little bit around explainability. I mean, I try to do that a little bit in the book actually to say, listen, why is explainability ethically important? I mean, I know it's important for debugging or something like that, but why is it ethically important? And then to think about how it connects to respect for persons and under what conditions, it would be ethically acceptable to have a black box, like maybe you have informed consent. So I think a little bit about that. I think maybe the most around issues of justice in the conversation around bias, because I think that conversation is very shallow at the moment. Bias is bad. Let's mitigate it. Yeah, sort of no shit. Um, but what's the? how do we decide what the appropriate metric is? Actually, I'll tell you one thing that I've been thinking a bunch about lately. So there's and this i think is a philosophical a real philosophical issue i actually was talking to some of my philosophy friends about it um i'd be interested to hear your view sure. but okay look one thing that you're doing with your ml is you're distributing you might be distributing goods and services so let's say take the classic example you're distributing loans across various subpopulations and you want to know if you're distributing those loans fairly justly equitably ac across various subpopulations okay we've done our distribution we've you know given it away and now we want to know did we do it fairly now we turn to our mathematical quote unquote definitions of fairness, the quantitative conceptions of fairness as found in the machine learning fairness literature. And you say, well, let's see how we did according to these metrics. And I don't know if it's famously or infamously or actually whether it's well known enough to, for this for either word to be used, but those metrics are not compatible with each other. And so you have to, 
um, choose the, the ethically appropriate one, ethically, reputationally, business appropriate metric. Okay. That's going to be phenomenally contentious. There's, there's going to be disagreement about what the appropriate metric is to use. And now you face a really pragmatic question. Well, you might thought, have thought the, the, the question that you need to address is what's the right metric for fairness? And I'm not sure that's the right question to ask. I, I think it might, because there's, you'll never get consensus. And then you have the, the real question I think is what do we do in the face of long-standing or, or very well entrenched disagreement about what the appropriate metric of fairness is. Now that's a really pragmatic question. And yeah. here's, here's a potential answer that I think is, I think is ethically appropriate. And I think is business appropriate because we got to get shit done here. We can't just sit around and talk for, you know, hold a conference and, you know, write publications and think about three years, what's the appropriate metric for this particular use case. So here, here's a suggestion that I, that I think is business sound. And I think it's ethically sound. Um, have a discussion about what the metrics are that are totally ethically off the table. Like definitely not these. These ones are totally ethically inappropriate and or business inappropriate. We're not going with those. So you started off with call it 24 metrics for fairness. You whittle it down to 12. And let's say that there's reasonable disagreement to be had about which among those 12 is the appropriate one. Flip a coin. Why isn't that the answer? And given entrenched disagreement, Given that we got to move here because there is deadlines to meet, given that it's reasonable disagreement, you're not disagreeing with a KKK member, you're disagreeing with, you know, a reasonable peer of yours who's thinking about justice and fairness and blah, 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 but has different, different philosophical, political, ethical views. We know the ones that are ethically off the table for the, for this business, rather than going through a debate about, you know, which one, which one of the 12, flip a coin and whichever one you pick seems to be ethically acceptable by the lights of a reasonable person. Is that, what do you think about that? I think, I think it's one of those things that like, it does come back to the context, right? So if you're talking about loans, right, it's contentious, but it's actually about the risk appetite, right? So risk appetite of the, the loan um, supplier. So you could actually make an algorithm, which wasn't particularly clever, which just had, you know, if they have more than this money, if not, you know, this decision tree, sure. which, which they can create, right? We're not, you, we're not really talking about machine learning here. Um, and yeah, if you're yeah. concerned about bias uh, mitigation, they could just do that. And like, we, we, we can actually decide not to use a machine. I'm doing air quotes here, AI, uh, machine learning technologies. Yeah. And we, we, we are actually, I think we are always too hasty actually in making that decision <laughs> instead of going, okay, we can use machine learning. Oh, now sure. we have this whole issue, yeah. which we have to first root out the bias in our system. Yeah. Then we have to decide, you know, and then we have to then re and there's all this stuff. Um, but also you can mitigate, um, you can, if you know, like you, like you were pointing out, you know, if you are, if you know, and you have metrics that are reasonably acceptable, um, and you know you have a particular issue, um, then you can actually design for that issue, right? So um, I was trying to think of a good example, but we have this, um, we used to have this company in the UK called Sheila's Wheels, and they would be a car insurer for women, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they would insure against a subpopulation which were less risky because that sure. was their risk appetite. And yep. if you're if you're actually telling everyone that that's what you're doing, that kind of changes the game, right? 
Um, and whether that's good or bad is actually, you know, part of this ethical question. You know, are we, is it bad that men are paying higher premiums than women? It's probably, you know, <laughs> there's lots of things that women are getting hard time on, so it's probably okay. But, um, you know, we can make that decision, but we are making it in the knowledge of, you know, the public knowledge of that decision, of, mm -hmm. of the outward uh, communication of that fact. Whereas we don't get that with like most of the institutions that we deal with, you know, um, the fact that this loan application is slightly wonky when it comes to uh, people from this demographic, uh, it might be that, you know, we can do something in, in the design of the system there that we can help mitigate that by uh, having a human loop when it gets to something that looks like yeah. that thing. You know, there's all these sorts of, but my mind often leaps to solution rather than <laughs> stepping back. And it seems like you were trying to... Uh, um, talk about something a bit more kind of high level. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I want to know about in the face of entrenched disagreement about how to think about fairness in a particular use case, if you've crossed off the list, all the things that seem unreasonable to people in the group that have to make the decision, is it ethically permissible to flip a coin? Remember you said, what am I thinking about sort of as a, in my, with my philosopher's hat on, and this is sort of half my philosopher's hat on, but also my business person's hat on, is it ethically acceptable to flip a coin and just go with whatever metric is deemed to be not unreasonable that the coin, you know, that the coin says we're going with. And of course you'll, you'll, um, you'll combine that with what the risk appetite is, what the profit, you know, what, what the goals of the, of the business are, but still you've got, you've got to choose a metric. Mm. And I think the, the focus of the conversation is how do you choose the right metric? And I think that that might be the wrong conversation to have, even ethically wrong. Ethically wrong? Do I think that? I don't know if I think that. But it's it's certainly not a helpful. It's not a helpful conversation to have because it it takes too long. Unless everyone's like, yeah, of course that's the metric to do. Of course we should maximize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you get to consensus in quickly. Of, in the absence of that, you know, what are you supposed to do? You can't do, you know, philosophical argumentation for for years to come. I mean, philosophers will do that, and will you know publish in journals and journals and journals and journals and journals and lots mm -hmm. of things still, and it'll be a little cottage industry about for this particular use case, what's the appropriate metric, but business people don't have time for that. Yeah. Well, I've actually made this algorithm, which can uh, make the decision for you about which metric to use. So uh, don't worry about it, Reed. I sorted it. Yeah. I know there, there are <laughs> flowcharts that say this is the appropriate metric. I would be. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah. I know, <laughs> I know there are such things, but I would be shocked if there weren't reasonable disagreement about how, how effective it is. Yeah. Given yeah, 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 definitely. Uh, I mean, they're, they're good guides. You know, those things can serve as sort of a good starting point for discussion. Be like, and oh, I see. We should be geared towards this for these reasons. We should sort of favor a metric like this. I guess that means you know that, but that doesn't tell us really why we should decide this metric versus that one. Although it does tell us to rule out these five for good, you know. And I think that's the kind of progress that, that you could make. Yeah, I think uh, for, for me personally, I think it's you know where possible, it makes most sense when you you do that in the open, right? So you know the other insurers can't learn from that if they don't know that that's happening you know we can't collectively actually have the, those conversations you know you've got to some at some point you've got to to pair that with okay so we're going to move society forward and we've made this decision and maybe we should tell someone about that it, i mean that's my view personally but mm -hmm. obviously it depends on again the context where you're coming from yeah i mean that would be great i think that would be 
great as a part of you know external oversight, auditing a company, et cetera, et cetera. It may even get built into regulations one day, especially in the EU. I don't think a company's going to volunteer that information so quickly. Although there would be something nice if there were a kind of, and again, this is totally off the cuff, but okay, you know, we're going to choose some metric. After we've ruled out the unacceptable ones, we're going to choose one randomly. Um, and then if it could, there could be a coordination with, well, internally with other teams so that they'll choose a different, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll choose randomly as well, but mm. they'll not only will they take off the unacceptable ones, but they'll also take off, take off the acceptable one that was used in the other project. And then you're getting, getting kind of an average of each of the metrics um, that are acceptable by the lights of reasonable people. And then if you can do that across organizations, you know, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. And then happen. you can shop yeah. and then in a, a situation which is not a monopoly, then you can kind of shop around and get different things happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to leave you with that one for now. Um, maybe we can come back to that in another, in another time. Another episode. Another episode. Uh, this is a pithy comment, but we talk briefly about different kind of houses. Um, I'm trying to think of a good term of ethics of ethical um, inquiry. Um, so we have um, virtue ethics and deontology and uh, utilitarianism. Blah, 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 ism. Uh, and I find it funny that you gave your company uh, virtue as a name. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that if I, if I, if there's one particular ethical tradition that I, that I like the most, it's, it's virtue ethics, um, or really more specifically Aristotle, the contemporary virtue ethicists I don't actually care for so much for the most part, there's exceptions, of course, but yeah, Aristotle is, you know, it's Aristotle or Nietzsche and Aristotle is, you know, a lot of my, my research takes its inspiration from Aristotle and Aristotle is, you know, He's the virtue. He's he's the virtue guy, at least whatever in the Western tradition. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, and so, it seemed to me an appealing word that I. It seemed to me distinctive. You know, it's something that sort of stands out, and it sounds sort of for branding purposes. It sounds sort of sturdy, reliable, short, to the point. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So virtue. Boom. Boom. Um. <laughs> As people on your side with the font say, Bob's your uncle. That's right. <laughs> um, I don't know why they say that. They just do. It's weird. I love the expression. I have no idea where it comes from. Um, so one of the other things, like I obviously urge people to read the book. And one of the things that is not in the book, which is why I bring it up, um, is this idea of regulation, industry bodies, some sort of overarching um, over, overseeing or auditing yeah. thing. What do you think about that situation? What do I think about the situation? So I do think that we need regulations. I think that's clear. I'm not totally clear myself on what those regulations ought to look like. I've got some views. So when you think about when this sort of speaks to your earlier question about what is it that you think about? One thing that I think about is what would effective regulation look like? And in particular, I think about, I wonder if the IRB model in medical research would apply here as well. So, you know, infamously various doctors, Nazis, um, doctors in the States during the Tuskegee, Tuskegee experiments um, did, you know, ethically horrific experiments on patients isn't even the right word. Let's just say victims. Um, and in response to that, the outcry entailed, among other things, regulations, specifically, among other things, uh, the Institutional Review Board or the IRB requiring any medical researchers to get IRB approval before doing any experimentation on people. The IRB is essentially at least in, in principle, supposed to 
ensure that uh, the subjects are safe, that the that the medical researchers are acting in accordance with certain ethical principles, respect for persons, beneficence, justice, and and one of the things that is great about an IRB is that it recognizes that there's, well, a couple of things. Number one, it's not for the researchers by themselves to figure out whether this is on the ethical up and up. They need some kind of external oversight. And number two, it's not paint by numbers, that you can't do medical ethics, medical research ethics paint by numbers because situations are complex and there's context and blah, 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 blah. So you need a, a sort of, I think you need an active body to continuously look at things on a case by case basis. AI is the same thing. I don't see how we can get something like regulations uh, that systematically identify and mitigate large ethical risks on a case by case basis with just sort of, you know, paint by number ethics. I don't, I don't, I don't mm. see how we can possibly do it. So I think that we need to have something like something akin to analogous to IRB approval in the realm of technology. And you can sort of, you know, extend the metaphor, extend the analogy like, oh, you know, we are testing on humans by releasing, you know, screwing with their news feeds and yeah. now they're depressed and killing themselves. And, you know, so there's, there's a kind of experimentation there and that, that's fair enough. But anyway, that I think about that when I think about regulation. What do we do about the countless use case specific ethical risks? And what do we do about the fact that what bias mitigation looks like here is not what bias mitigation looks like there. And while there could be decent policy around it, in some cases, the policy needs to be suspended. In fact, in, in hospitals, you have ethics committees that consider cases in which the policy points in one direction and the healthcare practitioners think that we should not go in the direction the policy points for these exceptional reasons. And then it goes to an ethics committee there needs to be some kind of capacity to do that. So I think that regulations, if they're to be successful, need to do, need to engage in a, an incredibly heavy lift, systematically identifying use case specific ethical risks. Um, and I, and the best guide we have is successes and the failures of IRBs in medical research. So in fact, it would be, you know, like you pointing out, you, you could have some sort of blunt, instrument which just weeded out the you know the normal use cases or the permissible use cases and then the less permissible use cases and we just go well okay we don't really know about this but we think it's important and now we're going to get this third party organization to look at it yeah i mean so look with with irbs i mean and and you can do research to get irb approval but there's something called expedited review where it just goes to say the chair of the committee and the chair says yep that's cool go ahead and mm -hmm. things, things go on it's much faster than a full committee review that person can't say they can't veto it the most they can say is either yes or this needs review by the whole committee you can imagine something like that as well where there are certain kinds of criteria and if certain kinds of criteria are met well, one, maybe you just do, the, you can do something analogous to the IRB expedited review where it goes to the third party, but it just goes to the chair and they yeah. can give you a stamp of approval if it's sufficiently low risk. Um, or maybe you, you make it a little bit leaner and say, you only have to go to the IRB if you say, you know, yes to one of these four questions. Yeah. I don't mean that literally, but I mean that as an example, you know, yeah. toy example, um, toy model. So, you know, and then it goes to the IRB and maybe then it goes to the chair and that could be expedited or not and blah, 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 blah. But yeah. I, I do think that there's going to have to be a method of dealing with the complexity that is not going to exist in a kind of, you know, I keep calling it ethics by numbers or something like that. You're just not going to do that. Um, 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Reed, what excites you and what scares you about AI in the future? It's the question we always ask near the end of the podcast. Uh, what excites me? Not that much excites me. I'm not very excitable when it comes to these kinds of things. <laughs> when it comes to these kinds of things, I mean, if anything is is exciting, although the, I don't know what the probabilities are, it's something like quantum computing married to AI to create precision medicine. That seems to me, or if not precision medicine, at least figuring out new cures for diseases. Yada yada. I think that stuff is phenomenally interesting and exciting if it can actually be pulled off. I think it probably can, but again, I don't know what a the probability is or b the timeline. But if the, if there's a thing, it's that yep. you know, figuring out the biological origins of various kinds of diseases and solving for them. That's amazing. Okay, that's so that's that's what you'll get from me from exciting, um, scary. You know, the only thing that's scary is a sort of a lack of political will, both within and and outside of organizations, to actually do ethical risk mitigation. As as I say in the book. I sort of think that AI ethical risk mitigation is not that hard in a way. I mean, if you really under, if you understand the issues, right? If you, if you get the issues, if you understand the complexity, what to do about it is not that complicated, at least in principle. So when I'm working with clients, I could tell them, you know, once I explain to them what the issues are, what the complexity is, what the sources of risk are, Thinking about how to mitigate those risks and what systems we need to put in place and what the policies should say and what the KPIs are and what a RACI matrix looks like. It's not that it's easy, but it's not, you know, insurmountable. It's, it's just a thing that you do. You have to work through it. So the only thing that's scary is um, organizations and other and, and you know, over politicians, regulators, et cetera, lacking the political will to put meaningful, meaningful guardrails in place. That's... That's it. It's not an insurmountable problem. And by that's it. The thing that's really scary, actually, is it's that it's not just AI. I answered earlier, it's quantum. So quantum is coming. Quantum computing is coming. There's really interesting things to say about quantum computing. And you take blockchain and IoT and AR, VR, and, you know, these new technologies into the world. And you've got, at least in the US, a Congress who's just getting to understand how Facebook works. And you're like, holy shit, that I don't know if they're asleep at the wheel or they're ignorant at the wheel or whatever. But the scary thing is that these the technology increases at an increasing rate. They're all going to interact with each other. And, you know, the U.S. anyway is still working on its version of GDPR, which is so 10 years ago, man. You know, it's like if you want to actually get getting ahead of this problem means doing things right now. And I just think that they're, there's, they're, no, they're nowhere near there. Mm-hmm. So that's the scary part, I think. Cool. Well, I concur. Um, so, Reed, let's, let's carry on trying to do something about that, I guess. Sure, sure. Working on it. Yep. Um, I mean, you know, that's, that's what the book is meant to do, right? So I, I actually do think that the book is written, in, you know, once one at AWS said, thank you so much. You know, they read the book. And now I can give this to my grandmother and she can understand what I do. Um, and I thought, yes, great, good. That's what I want. I want an 80 year old congressman <laughs> to, to be like, I don't know what, you know, no clue what AI is read the book and say, okay, I get it enough to know that there's a real issue here and something needs to be done. And they, they see, they see what's going on in a way that they didn't before. That's, that's what the book is meant to do. And then if they want me to come talk to them about it, I'm happy to do so. 
Wicked. Um, so, Reed, uh, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge and your experience. How do people find you, look you up, follow you and read your book? Um, right. So, well, thanks for having me. It's really fun. Happy to do it again on or offline. Uh, to find me, you can find me at readblackman.com is the easiest thing, R-E-I-D-B-L-I-C-K-M-A-N.com. So you'll find a bunch of articles there. You'll find information in the book and actually a crash, crash course on AI ethics that you'll find, I think. Um, so a bunch of things there. And of course, my contact information is there. I also post regularly on LinkedIn so people can follow me on LinkedIn and see see stuff there um and how do you read the book you, you know you order it you open it you know move your eyes over the over the pages that sort of thing yep cool um thanks reed thanks very much for your time and i'll see you again my pleasure thanks so much hi and welcome to the end of the podcast thanks again to reed blackman for coming on and talking to us he's extremely active and vocal on linkedin so I definitely go on there and follow him there if you're interested as he's sharing lots and lots of different um, things that he's been reading and looking at. It was a real pleasure talking to Reed about all this stuff in his book and it was a really great read which I'll have a review out soon on the Patreon. I'm not necessarily in agreement with his ideas around machine ethics and researching ethics in machines but everything else seems right up my street. Thanks again and stay tuned soon for another episode from us. Bye.